This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing uh, Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm in Chicago again today, and my guest on the podcast this week is John Laffler, co-founder of Off Color Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, John. Oh, thank you. We're sitting here in the Mousetrap Brewery uh, down in, uh, in uh, uh, sh- just out of downtown Chicago, uh, surrounded uh, by steel in this room and some beautiful wood fooders uh, from Italy in the uh, room next door. Uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of uh, fun and funky uh, mixed culture fermentation and the like, as well as their uh, foray into brewing sake. Uh, but first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller. Also, turn your fridge into the best craft beer around with the Tavor app. Get access to -to hard-to-find, 100% independent craft beer from 47 states. Only buy the beers you want and skip the ones you don't. Ship any amount of your hand-picked beer to your doorstep for one flap fee. Yes, any amount. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. That's Tavor, T-A-V-O-U-R. Again, welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. Uh, let's, uh, for those that aren't familiar with uh, with Off Color and where you are right now, tell me a little bit about uh, your foray in brewing, uh, how you've kind of moved through that world of brewing, and what those steps are that kind of led you uh, today to, to be brewing this kind of beer here at Off Color. Sure. Uh, so sort of got my start professionally, more or less, uh, when Dave Blightner, my business partner, uh, we both met at Siebel. Uh, we graduated here in Chicago in 2008, I think. Uh, so we met at beer school. Um, before that, we both sort of had different careers, uh, wanted to do something different, um, which is not an uncommon story. Um, so I went to, went to Siebel, went through that. Um, I started working at, uh, right after that, we both started interning at Metropolitan, which is a local lager brewery here, uh, which is very near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, right when they were opening. So we got to see, you know, from very in the very nascent stages, right. the, the sort of first couple of weeks of a, of a craft brewery opening up. Um, this was 10 years ago, longer than that. Uh, it was about a decade ago uh, when there was, you know, Half Acre and you know, this was pre-revolution. Like right, this is, right. There was two new breweries in Chicago for the first time in 15 years, something like yeah. that. Um, so the barrier to entry was much, much higher. Um, and the amount of knowledge base out there of how to actually do anything was much lower. Sure. Um, so we both helped out there. Uh, I was also working part-time and, well, yeah, mostly part-time um, at a very fancy liquor store we had here called West Lakeview Liquors. Um, unfortunately, RIP West Lakeview Liquors, but that is a recent development. Uh, West Lakeview was super important to us in Chicago craft beer. Um, it was sort of our main place where you go and find beers that you've never seen anywhere else. Sure. They're very much into imports. Um, you go there, you find strange craft beers from Iceland. Um, some of the Nungyo stuff you never find anywhere else in Chicago, right. uh, at least not curated. 
Uh, you might be able to go to like a Benny's or a Sam's when it was still Sam's. Uh, and they might have some of it, uh, but not curated. And it would right. be extremely old. And um, anyways, let's say it was very important to a lot of us um, because it was sort of that really deep dive into what beer was because there wasn't this American craft beer scene the sure. way that it is now, not nearly with the depth. Um, and that's where I really started developing my, I mean, I, there was love for it before, but really went very deep into my love of very esoteric, uh, what I think of as very elegant, sophisticated taste profiles. Yeah. Um, never been extremely into, um, you know, double IPAs and things where the main focus is flavor intensity. I always like uh, flavors to be more harmonious um, and sort of beer to be telling a story as you're drinking it. Yeah. Um, it should tell a sense of who the previous person is making it, uh, what they're trying to express, and, you know, sort of should be a little something more than just a commodity that we consume. Yeah. Um, that's how I personally look at beer, and uh, that, you know, talks a lot about our ethos here at, at Off Color. Um, after that, uh, I'm a little into the weeds, which I am prone <laughs> to do. We'll get back to that later yeah. on, I promise. That's, yeah. uh, after that, uh, Dave went to go work at Two Brothers, uh, which is a brewery we have here out in the suburbs. Um, and I went to go scrub floors at Goose Island. Uh, like scrub floors? Yeah. No, I got hired as sanitation crew. Okay. Uh, I was on my business cards when I started. When I left, I still had the same box business cards. <laughs> um, they liked how well I scrubbed floors, that they let me do some other fun stuff. I uh, got to mess around a lot with the barrel program um, and did a fair amount with that, along with uh, my supervisor then was Tom Quarter, who's now over at Penrose. Um, so it was, it was a very fun time to be in beer. Um, Goose Island was always very, very good to me. It was there through the buyout, which is often the question that I get. Um, I was not pleased about that. When, when it happened, we were told we were allowed to express some concern, and my statement that day was that I have some concern. Um, but you know, Greg and John Hall um, you know, gave me a shot here. Um, they were always extremely influential. Um, you know, my day would sort of start when I worked at Goose. I would sort of walk into work, go, go find some coffee, um, won't find where I left my coffee cup the day before. Go find some coffee. Um, especially people who worked with me there will, will know all those stories. Uh, and then go sit down in Greg's office and just chat with him uh, and with uh, Chelsea, his uh, you know, sort of personal assistant, you know, good friend of mine. Uh, we just talk about beer and you know, sort of bring him some of the stuff they were working on in the R&D side. Uh, sort of get his feedback on yeah. what those were, why we were doing it. Uh, and why we were doing stuff was often a large part of that conversation, which is, you know, you can see how important that is to me still. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the whole time, you know, Dave and I had always had the idea of eventually we'll start our own brewery. Um, but we thought it was very important to learn how to actually, how a brewery runs. <laughs> Go um, figure. That seems like it should be a part of this whole thing. Yeah. Not just yeah. like, oh, I, my, my mom likes my beer. The neighbors at the barbecue think it's really good. Yeah. Like, that's all well and good. That's great. You should have great beer. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a factory that we work in. Um, you know, if you want to equate it to the restaurant world, you know, you sort of start washing dishes and then you learn how to work the salad bar and then you work your way up learning each station along the way so you understand how the entirety works. Um, you know all the ins and outs and the nuances. Uh, when you come in just at the top level, you don't necessarily have all those intermediary skill sets that you learn. Yeah. So every, even still, every year I try to learn a new aspect of this trade. So I know a lot more about plumbing and electrical work than you sure, ever thought sure. about solenoid valve design. Um, you know, when, when the bottling line goes down, it's not like there's people you can right, call that can right. just rush in and fix it. You figure it the fuck out. 
Um, Mark from uh, Iron Hill was on a, a podcast episode a few weeks ago, and he mentioned uh, you know how they like to hire for the brew house from you know if people want to come work for him, and they have a lot of people reach out to him that uh, uh, he sends them to the restaurant side and says go go get a job serving cleaning something in the restaurant. And, uh, you know, if you're good, then we may hire you from there. Mm. And, uh, you know, to see if people are, are working and, you know, have that kind of ethic. and uh, But also understanding the business and understanding the pressure. And, uh, you know, of course, as you know, most of the time you spend in a brew house is spent cleaning uh, more so than actually brewing. Um, you know, but you're right. You, uh, so you put yourself through that kind of uh, professional on-the-job learning program coming out of Siebel working in these professional environments. What, uh, what led, you know, and you have that dream to launch your own brewery. Uh, what told you that was the right time to do it? And, uh, you know, well, how did you develop a focus uh, for this business at Off Color? Uh, for, for David, I was kind of just, it was time. We kind of learned all the things we yeah. need to learn. Uh, I accomplished most of the things I wanted to at Goose, and it was sort of time for me to move on regardless of where I was going to go after that. Um, you know, there's a lot of changes that were happening in that program at that time. Um, it was it was really time to to move yeah. on, um, um, and then you know the sort of the climate in in Chicago was right. We were kind of at the tail end of that sort of big wave of new breweries opening up. We had you know Salamoth and Penrose and us and uh, a whole whole host sure, of other breweries sure. opening up around that time. Um, so we were sort of hitting that end of the second wave. It was like it was time to do it. Um, and we also had gotten financing. Oh, <laughs> well, that's so, gonna be good. so that helps. Yeah. Sure, I mean, sure. It, 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 opening a brewery is not particularly cheap. It, it's no. gotten a lot cheaper, but and certainly not in a metropolitan area like Chicago, where uh, you're also dealing with uh, a lot of regulations, unions, the whole nine yards for uh, you know for uh, city regulators uh, and some uh, at times capricious uh, laws around about what you do. Oh no, the city officials are all our friends. Are they good? Yeah, <laughs> they are wonderful. <laughs> I cannot say enough nice things yeah, yeah, we, about dealing we, we with, with the city. We love city regulators. You know, so then uh, you convince a, a bank or, you know, to, or uh, I assume it's a bank or uh, to. Yeah, we, we, have finance, we have debt financing as well as investorship. Okay. Uh, yeah. How do you uh, uh, make a case for brewing now the styles of beer that you've decided to focus on? Because you, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, have a, a love and a passion for more esoteric beers and more harmonious beers, uh, you know, beers that may not be as you know, intense and flavor forward as, uh, you know, as, as may be the current trend, um, you know, coming out with, uh, you know, an approach like that through a brewery like this may seem to be a little riskier than some others. Uh, it certainly is. But at the same time, we are a very niche brewery. Um, it's, it's very much part of our DNA. Um, and there's some pros and cons to that. Um, on, the, on the upside, uh, you know, not a lot of other breweries are making the types of beers we make, so we stand yeah. out in that regard. Uh, for us, that's very important. A uh, big part of it is just, you know, if we're just going to come out and make the same beer as everybody else, what's, what's the whole fucking point of this? Yeah. We can make more money working somewhere else and work a lot less. Uh, if we're just going to make the same pale ale as, as a brewery down the street. And now, now there are literally breweries down the street. Um, so, but, you know, I don't get a point of putting yourself through all this if you're not doing it for a reason. And for us, it was to make the beers that we think should be made. Um, if you know, if you are very into pale ale, that's great. Y'all do you. Uh, for us, that wasn't it. Uh, for us, it was trying to make things that were a little harder to make that other people weren't. Um, so you know, puts us in our own little camp, which is sure, nice. Sure. Um, we're also, you know, Dave and I individually are both very cagey people. Yeah. Um, so we don't necessarily play along well with, with <laughs> others all the time. Yeah. Um, very, very, 
know, Copier had this whole ethos of, of very rugged individu individualists. Um, I feel like we've lost a little bit of that, but yeah. you know, it's also just dilution. Um, you know, and it's also great because that's not necessarily the, the best thing in the world. Is you know, the nineteen ninety five uh, crap remodel where you know you had a bearded, grunty, angry guy in the back that was not allowed to talk to the customers. Right, right. Um, I get you know. I guess I could see this as a uh, you know. Multiple and different reasons for getting into the brewing business. You know, there's that I want to provide hospitality and experience, you know, of this place and this beer and make people happy. There's that, uh, you know, I want to build a successful business that I can then, you know, flip and retire on. Don't love that idea. But, uh, uh, and then there's this idea that you seem to come at it with where we have a creative vision for, uh, you know, creating these kinds of, you know, beautiful but under uh, appreciated styles of beer. Um, and pushing a gospel with that kind of creative vision for what we're making uh, in this very particular and you know kind of niche approach, um, you know, and it would seem like yours is probably the most risky of those, uh, you know, but at the same time most uh, personally creatively fulfilling. Never said we were smart, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, to mitigate that risk uh, yeah. from the from the very beginning, uh, we started. You know, you can either sell all your beer in one place, which right. very much ties you to the types of beers that people in that place want to buy, uh, at least in the, in the volumes that you need to sure. sustain the business, uh, or you can go you know, wider. Uh, so we started working with 12% Imports, mm -hmm. uh, which is similar to Shelton Brothers and what they do. Right. Um, so they have a very small amount of breweries um, that you know make very interesting beers for the most part, and they sell them very far afield. Um, so. And so it's this wide but very shallow kind of distribution approach where you're you know generally working through you know twelve percent, putting your beers primarily in urban and you know environments where there's a savvy consumer that uh, may be looking for something out of the norm, targeting those beer bars that get it that are looking for those more unique products and those unique beers that that tell some different kind of story or or echo a certain kind of place. Um, and by going wide now, that, that there's certainly more costs and less margin involved when you start moving in a business like that. Obviously, all the beer that you sell over the counter at your own tap room is going to be the, the most profitable beer for you to sell. Um, you know, how do you work through that to you know kind of create this idea of the brand you know within these kind of disparate communities, um, you know, and locales? You know, normal breweries hire reps in a market and they go out and they tell the story and uh, you know retailers and you know consumers come to and, and experience that story in some way with reps and, and you know they, they get it out there it becomes harder than for something like off color to tell a story like that in this wide and kind of shallow environment oh 100 percent um fortunately social media came and changed how we're able to talk to people yeah um so you know we have you know found the guy who ran the best cat Twitter account on the internet, uh, and then we hired him. Uh, you know, social media has certainly changed our ability to directly discuss our beers and why right. we're doing them uh, to consumers who are interested and to retailers whom are interested. Uh, you know, we do a lot with emailing retailers directly of, you know, these are beers we're working on. They All of them sort of need some explanation of why we're doing it and right. what they are. Um, Otherwise, you know, if you're not supporting your beer, it's not going to move. And if you don't care about your beer, why is anybody else going to care about your beer? Uh, but it certainly has a challenge. Um, fortunately, you know, the traditional model for regionals was you had to add a person in each market. Otherwise, there's no point in sending beer to the market. Uh, but that's an extremely expensive way of doing it. Um, and then, you know, the farther field you are, the, the less pull-through you have. Um, 
but you know by being able to just get on the internet and talk to people more or less directly uh, to help mitigate a lot of that risk. Yeah. Um, well, we still got to maintain the sort of the intellectual and creative freedom we got by not having to, you know, sell enough beer locally to, turn, to keep the lights on. Yeah. We can find our sort of our people around the country. And now you do. You know, we're sitting here at the Mousetrap, which has a large tap room attached to it or a relatively large tap room attached to, you know, to the, the kind of uh, wild and funky brewery here. Um, you know, and so it seems like you you, you are now playing both of those uh, you know sides and have found a large enough audience here that can, uh, can you know continue to kind of patronize this uh, uh, you know tap room environment. Yeah, I mean both both markets are very important to us. Our sort of local people that come here you know every week and yeah. sort of follow us along and see what we're doing, as well as people who come from out of town, which is why we're here in Lincoln Park, which is not the you know people were very surprised we moved here as opposed to a you know going into. Um, Logan Square or somewhere that every other brewery is going into. Yeah, um, you know we don't necessarily zig when people zag, but you know we kind of look for where the opportunities are. And so much of our market share and so much of our you know the people that really support us uh, are from far afield. Um, so people coming in from out of town, Chicago is a great town to come into. Uh, so we're close to downtown because you can just jump up here on the red line. You can take a you know lift from downtown for ten bucks. Yeah, mine was seven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and fifteen minutes, right? You know, twelve minutes piece of cake. Yeah, we could have spent yeah. a quarter of the amount we spent on rent, um, but if you have to spend forty-five minutes going to a part sure, of part sure. of Chicago that you know kind of looks a little sketchy, and you're not from here, yeah, um, that's not necessarily the most welcoming to people from out of town. Again, we we sell beer nationally and a lot of our audience is that national market yeah uh so we'll, let's start talking about some uh, some of these beers you make we're drinking a, a rice lager uh and i'd love to we've got a table full of uh, some uh, very creative expressions of beer uh, before we go to that direction uh, balancing barley and hops is your expertise and for clarion lubricants food grade lubricants is theirs the team at clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer you are the expert and when it comes to supplying food grade lubricants backed by service oriented professionals they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION. That's 855-692-5274 or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. Scott Fabricating is excited to announce the new and improved Half Pint OD Mobile Depalletizer. The OD is made up of stainless steel and lightweight aluminum with a new patent-pending rotary table design that provides accumulation and natural back pressure to help cans flow smoothly and consistently into your filler. This machine can run up to 80 cans per minute, features over 180 degrees of flexibility for wrench cage placement, and even has a smaller footprint than the original Half Pint. It's a breakthrough design for breweries in search of a fully automated solution that fits a tight space and budget. To learn more, contact Fab today at 970-403-8562 or reach out online at scofffabricating.com. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, some of these beers that we're going to drink. Uh, you know, like I said, I wanted uh, to talk about uh, your also your foray into sake, um, you know, but I think, uh, you know, some of the beers that you're most known for, um, you know, that, that tend to travel around the country, uh, you know, the most are, are beers like Apex Predator and Troublesome Goza. And, uh, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, some of the, those kind of core focuses for you and then how that extends out to uh, uh, some of the more limited expressions. Sure. Uh, so much of our beer and sort of what we try to do is this make beers a little experimental, which push people a little bit, uh, which is still our approachable and drinkable. Uh, for the most part, we're a very fermentation-focused brewery. 
uh, especially here at Mousetrap as opposed to production. We have a little bit of split in how we do things and where we do things now. Um, since we have two facilities and we can yeah, you know, have a nice yeah. sharp divide of where wild stuff lives and where clean beers live. Uh, and you have two separate brew houses in each of those locations in order to keep it completely separate? Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a truck that goes back and forth, and that's really about the only... Uh, we try not to share yeah. equipment when we, when we can possibly help it. Um, you know, you can get away with doing wild stuff, mixed firm stuff, and sacro-only beers in a brewery for a while with good cleaning practices right. and good uh, SOPs, and we got away with it for a while. And it had been a while. <laughs> cool, how, how long are we going to push this for yeah. before something catastrophic goes wrong? Uh, but that being said, we still have... And you, know, you made the split before anything catastrophic went yeah, wrong? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, but we still have you know, you know, very wild uh, lacto tanks over there. Uh, we still do a lot of blunder vice over there. Right. Um, so we're not you know, completely... And there's still some wild, belt, wild wood stock over there in, in smaller barrels. Um, so we're not, we don't have the complete separate divide, but sure. uh, we're not flipping tanks and you know, going from a Brett beer in one and then right. doing right. sack right afterwards. Again, you, you can do that uh, with good practice, but it's it, it, one point your luck's going to run out. Sure, um, sure. So we were fortunate enough to be able to split before we had something horribly wrong go yeah. wrong. Um, not like we've never dumped a tank before, because that's of part and parcel of this whole thing. Um, again, my sort of personal feeling is if you're not taking enough risks in terms of what you're trying to do and trying to uh, accomplish, that you are dumping beer here and there, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. You're just playing it too safe. No idea what your original question was. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, but that, that isn't actually, I, I, I like that point that you're making that, uh, you know, you should be, uh, uh you know, uh, uh, pushing some limits there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not, and if you're not, uh, you know, kind of, uh, finding the edge, then, uh, you know, then you're not really striving hard enough. Yeah. I mean, and some brewers, I mean, to be honest, some brewers really love being a shift brewer coming in and just nailing their specs every time and, you know, trying to eke out another half percent efficiency on your mash. And you know what? That's a very valuable skill set. And um, if you can cut out, you know, 50 bags a turn, or sorry, $50 a turn, yeah. that adds up real quick. Um, so, you know, that's a very valuable part of brewing. And one of yeah. the things I love about, like about this industry is it's wide enough and deep enough uh, that everyone can find something in it that really appeals to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so sort of our, our flagship beer, by definition, uh, is, of course, Apex Predator. Um, Apex, which is... 70%, 80% of our production. Okay. Um, so it, it's by far in a way, like, you know, it's our Allagash White, uh, which is also a delicious beer, by the way. Never never missed a chance to plug that. Of course. Um, An Apex Predator is a farmhouse ale saison. Yep. Uh, it's a you know, dry hop. Uh, it's by far our hoppiest beer, and, you know, we're, we're the first people to say we don't make particularly hoppy beer, and then yeah. our largest beer is, of course, <laughs> a, our hoppiest one. Yeah. Um, the whole point of that beer uh, from concept was to demonstrate how the importance of fermentation. Um, the yeast in it is so expressive uh, that even though it's a relatively, not in today's terms, it's a mildly dry hopped, but it's still a moderately dry hopped beer, uh, that the fermentation profile is still dominant. Uh, what was kind of neat about that beer that works well for us um, is it ages more or less gracefully as opposed yeah. to a IPA or a, a very hop-centric beer. Uh, as those hops fade, which is inevitable, um, you know, we do our best and you know, a lot of our brewer tricks are trying to extend flavor, uh, how long flavors last and are appropriate. Um, but if you have know, a hop-centered beer and those hops die away, then you have nothing left. Right. Whereas with Apex, because it's a fermentation-focused beer, um, it just sort of changes, kind of like how Orval changes over time. Right. Um, I personally like Apex around like three or four months when that hop 
character has started to dissipate um, and sort of the, the weirdo funk comes up, um, it's, it does a pure sack beer. Yeah. Um, so there's no mixed culture or anything in there. Uh, but the yeast itself is kind of weirdo. Um, it throws all this uh, slightly tangerine, but like really like juicy fruit bubble gum. Uh-huh. Uh, we do a couple tricks. We ferment it super hot. Um, and then we add uh, some sucrose, which is also an, for us is an important part of getting the fermentation profile we're looking for out of that okay. beer. We're just trying what to, does the sucrose then do? Uh, it bumps up acid profile. Okay. Uh, it's not a ton, but it's enough. It's, it's like a feeding you know, bread to ducks. Like it gets them all excited <laughs> real quick. Uh, okay. It's a little bit like fast food. Yeah. Uh, so it gets the yeast a little hyper to start off with. It helps us bump our initial fermentation. You know, gets that doesn't cause any it. attenuation issues. It's not like they get so excited about this crack that you've just fed them, and then now they've got to go do the hard work and they get <laughs> bored with it. Uh, it's not enough to have catabolic repression. No, okay. It's not. It's not that high. Um, though we do, we do do a, a triple, which is eighteen percent sucrose. That's when I really start to worry about catabolic repression. Okay. If you add too much sucrose, and obviously. Uh, the yeast will learn to just eat the sucrose and be right. like, oh, I don't want to eat this carbohydrate. Are you kidding me? It's two, two fucking sugars put together? <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, but no amount that we add, it's, what, 100 pounds of, of sucrose, I think, off the top of my head. It's been a while since I've... That's one of those beers, like, you just, in your seat, you sure, be able to make sure. it, but I haven't made it in a while. Uh, but it's enough to dry the beer out a little bit. It ends up, like, yeah. one eight Play-Doh. Um, so we're, we're going for very dry on that. Sure. Um, so it helps with that. Um, how'd you go about selecting a yeast for that one? Uh, that was always one of the, one that yeast comes from a, one of the little breweries, um, in Belgium that I think is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's also not the most common one that everybody uses. Okay. Uh, but that, that was the yeast I started using when I was home brewing. Um, always super loved it. Yeah. Um, and it works relatively well. There's some tricks to it. Um, it's mm-hmm. not as finicky as like the Phantom stuff is. Okay. Um, or like the you know, quintessential, like what people think of as Dupont. Uh, you can buy from Yeast is super finicky, um, so we, we don't use that. Um, but you know, just very much like that yeast. Not a lot of people were using it. Um, it's just like, oh, this yeast spits out a ton of juicy fruit and bubble gum. That's what we're trying to look for in, in this beer. And yeah, we match that with uh, some crystal and some sterling, and it, it, I think it works very well. And people seem to like it, um, but. We were able to expand on that sort. Of, that's those are our core beers, and we have troublesome. We started making goza when it, I think it was just like us and Westbrook were the only people making goza in the U.S. <laughs> right, right. Um, or like maybe like some brew pubs like Denver would do it as a you know as a one off or a seasonal or something. But it was this was way before the you know goza had its sort of moment in the sun and everyone right. fucked it all up. Um, but we make I have strong opinions on that. Let's get back to that one in a second. I don't, yeah. I want to hear uh, you know. In fact, why don't you tell me about that? When you say other brewers have fucked it up, what do you mean by that? Uh, so we had the tendency as, Amer- as Americans to just always try to turn volume up more. And yeah. we think we're so fucking clever because we can just, no, it's just louder. Yeah. It's louder. Yeah. It's like, it's not better. It's just, <laughs> it's just louder. Um, I don't think that is a big, you know, it is our hallmark of innovation, but I don't think it's a particularly sure. elegant form of, of uh of innovation and we do it across everything i mean music is a perfect example of that if you look at uh you know the way that music is produced these days the you know it's compressed to shit so that uh uh, the dynamic range is incredibly tight and that allows them to increase the overall volume of it and again just to make it louder so that one song comes out louder on the radio than the next or on spotify or however the fuck people listen to it um you know but uh, you know that same principle kind of applies as that volume gets louder and you know you lose that dynamic range you lose that 
that uh, the highs and the lows, um, and they just get sacrificed at this altar of the volume, volume, volume. That seems to you know have an interesting corollary to what you're talking about here. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, total from us is. So, how are brewers then turning the volume up on Goza in a way that's uh, that's ruining it? Uh, so, you know, we make ours much more like 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 the uh, Goza was. Um, you know, it's it has a very slightly brackish water source on the Goslar River. It's not. We add a fuck ton of salt to it because <laughs> it has salt on labels. So, you know, ours is saltier than the next guy's. Um, so. You know, German Gozo is you know more delicate. Um, it had yeah. more expression. You, you get malt character. You get slight salinity, which adds to the mouthfeel, as opposed to just being salty for salty's sake. Uh, you know, we're not trying to over savory a beer. We're just trying to highlight some of the uh, the, the richer mouthfeel. I mean, fucking old old guys at bars in the '70s would do that. They take their bottle long next to Budweiser and sprinkle a little salt on it. <laughs> not like I think they knew exactly why, yeah, but they just yeah. knew that their beer tastes fuller uh, yeah. when you do that. Uh, you know, so these are sort of some of the things we're looking for. We're looking for expression of the entirety of the beer um, as opposed to just central characteristics. Um, but yeah, American Goza very quickly became way over-salted, uh, became way too acidic uh, for I think the beer should be. Uh, fortunately, you know, we all get to have our own breweries, and it's right. not that hard to have a brewery anymore. So if you disagree with me, open your own fucking place. Uh, but you know, this is why we think Goza should taste... This is how we want right, Goza to taste. Right. This is how we make make Goza. Um, then everyone started adding a tons of fruits to it and all that shit. And we we do a couple Goza variants. Um, I think we have our hibiscus one out right now at the at the bar. Um, so it's not like we're, we're purists in this regard. Yeah. Uh, but I just think every all these flavors should be harmonious um, and in concert with each other. Not just let's take let's take two aspects of the beer and just blow them up and then we can auto tune the rest. Like that's yeah. not. So, but brewing a beer like that, that, uh, you know, that uh, strives towards a very delicate balance and that kind of, you know, dynamism uh, can be incredibly difficult, you know, much more difficult than doing something like putting more salt in it or more fruit in it. Um, building some malt character and expression of, of that that balances with a very light, uh, you know, uh, uh, salinity uh, and a very, you know, very uh, uh, gentle acidity. I mean, pulling those things into balance, you know, without with those subtle flavors becomes an even bigger challenge. How do you create character even within that very, you know, that beer that's balanced at this very, very light level? Well, that's why it's called troublesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that beer probably took us 30, I think it was 32, uh, iterations before we kind of like got it right. Uh, we took that beer apart, put it back together a couple of different ways. Yeah. At first we started trying to do all the fermentation all at once. So we do a lot of bacillus fermentation, um, and then we also do uh, sack fermentation. Right. Uh, we're trying to do those in a core morbid process, and that was just too variable. Um, so some turn out great, others not turn out as great. And you know, I, I'd always rather have less 100% beers um, and more like, you know, if, if your average is you have a couple 100% beers and you have a couple 70 beers on the, the, how, how true to style range this is, you know, rather sacrifice the, the really highs and have a more consistent product um, that's sort of our hallmark as professionals yeah and then try to raise up the sort of that mean um, so rather not have those highlights i'm saying the same thing in like three different ways uh, i see what you're saying you know the average of your hundreds with your 70s yeah. gives you an 85 but if you can give away some hundreds and get that average up to you know like mid 90s then uh, overall you're doing much better exactly yeah um so we had to split those two fermentations. Um, so uh, we now do a, we have a 
tanks, dedicated lacto tanks um, that have you know some wild uh, lactobacillus in them. Um, we use a slayer process on that too, so we sort of add a little bit of beer to it. It it acidifies. We pull some of that out. We pasteurize it, and then blend that into um, a fermenting beer. And okay, that so process it's not works a better. it's not a single stream, you know, kind of kettle sour process. Yeah. It is pulling from a stock of uh, acid beer or light acid beer in yeah. this case, and then blending to the you know, exact spec for your yeah for acidity. And that worked much better for us to hit a consistent, repeatable product. Um, so that was one of the learning processes we had of scaling this up from five gallon scale. Sure, sure. How about malt? Uh, you know, building a, a malt and beer characters to this kind of thing that's got uh, you know these other strong uh, you know flavors in it, uh, but also at the same time uh, you know a body that needs to remain incredibly light. You know, despite that kind of flavorful malt character, uh, how do you you know what uh, what tricks do you use to kind of build more character despite that kind of light body? Uh, well, we use best malt because it has best right on it so then you know it's <laughs> it says best right yeah. on the label i mean they, they would get sued otherwise uh we have switched malts from them now too uh but i still use you can see i still use a fair amount of best malt. You use second best malt now yeah, yeah it's cheaper yeah, yeah. okay fast ideas discount malt uh it's it's fine is their tagline <laughs> uh no blending malt is is like anything else um you know it's sort of coming up through through beer in the 90s and seeing all that everyone just added crystal 60 to everything and just yeah. over sweetened everything um, so we tend to look for we use a lot of pills malt desert base malts uh, we use pale and i think two beers a year um, we tend to go for dryness um, so we want attenuation uh, so we're looking for lighter malts and you know i use some really old school i use a lot of special aromatic i think it's me and three floors are the only people in the, in chicago that use it and i get like whatever they don't buy like i can maybe get um, so I have to sub for Vienna a lot. Um, personally, as as just me, not as everybody else in our company, uh, the beers I design tend to use the same four or five malts and just in different proportions. I kind of know what they do, and yeah. that's not... No, it, the malt character is important to our beers, but it's not the hallmark of our beers. Usually we're trying to just get a little, little groundwork and then have it get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, so we tend to not use stuff that leaves a lot of residual sugars because all of our beers are as dry as we... For the most part, as dry as we can get them. Yeah. So beyond something like troublesome, uh, you know, where do you go from there? And let's uh, you know let's start to talk about how you've now built Mousetrap to you know focus on these you know mixed fermentation beers, wild cultures, uh, you know food aged beers, uh, and uh, and how you now think about moving into uh, you know that additional heightened level of acidity and uh, you know other flavor components to these beers. Yep, and you know, and concept is the same as any of other beers. We're just trying to have our harmonious and symphonical yeah. uh, with diff- with disparate parts. We just have more parts to play with over here. Yeah, um, you know, sort of this. I, I always love wild brewing. I think it's the most interesting part. It's like otherwise, it's a very industrial process, which is cool enough in its own right. But um, I like how things change over time. I like using fruits that have seasonality to them or that are different from year to year. Um, you know, I do use some. You know, fruit juices and stuff, which is a sure. commodified product. Um, it's not like we're going to the farmer's market and just buying fruit there because fresh fruit is fucking dumb um, for a lot of fruit beers. Uh, but that's really oh yeah. Why uh, uh, you get less flavor, color, and aroma extraction? Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of IQF fruit or individually quick frozen. Uh, by freezing the fruit, you burst the ice crystals form. They burst the cell walls. Yeah. Um, and then you get better flavor, color extraction out of them. If you just go to the farmer's market and then you take whole fruit and you throw it in a beer it takes forever and you get in my opinion you get less flavor out of it 
Um, sort of same as... Uh, but it's a much more romantic story. Oh, and the story is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going <laughs> to sit here and tell you the story is not important. Um, but yes, it's much less romantic than, like, I went and bought this from Farmer Phil, and, you know, I asked how his goats were doing, and, you know, Cindy is a little bit lame, but she's going to come along. It's a much better story. Um, we, we still use local farmers. Uh, we buy a lot of stuff from Teeling. We buy a fair amount of stuff from Klug. Um, there are uh, fruit farms uh, that a lot of Chicago brewers use. Um, they're in uh, southwest Michigan for the most part. Uh, and, you know, we're, we are... we. Do the farmers market every? I used to go every week. I don't go every week anymore. Uh, but you know, we are very involved in the agricultural aspect of, of it. Part of us, our yeah. Midwestern DNA is part of that as well. Um, but I use a fair amount of fruits. I use a lot of Asian fruits, a lot of very esoteric fruits. Um, use a lot of like yuzu and calamansi and stuff in that sort of similar vein. And um, you can find that individually, quick frozen. Oh no, no. <laughs> I, have, I have a couple uh, importers that we've sort of worked and developed right. relationships with um, to the point where they're like, oh, cool, like, we're thinking about bringing this stuff into the U.S. You want to try it? I'm like, yeah, yes, yes. Can I get through the the FDA? Um, and then so long as it's legal for us to use. And yeah, yeah I, I want to try it. Uh, we did a blender vice with uh, those little miracle berries once. Huh. That was super cool because, you know, they changed your perception of acid to sweet. So why don't we put them in acidic beer? The whole point of that was to put it into a... Uh, Someone's doing like a Blender Vice festival or a competition or some uh-huh. dumb shit like that. So I was like, yeah, let's just ruin this for everybody. <laughs> and it, it worked to some extent. Um, we, we only did, I think I dicked around with that twice. But um, And so this berry changes. Hmm? Uh, what's the, How long does that uh, effect last? About half an hour. Okay. So for the next half an hour, it changes your palate so you perceive acidity as sweetness? Yeah. Man, you really were screwing with everybody there. Huh? Yes. Yeah, well, again, if we're not trying new things and just trying to have fun with this but yeah. I mean that's not going to be a commercially successful beer right um, but it's fun to experiment with and try out sure um, sure uh, so puree you know obviously if you're okay with quick frozen fruit you, you can't have a philosophical problem with puree huh uh, not necessarily um, I have a little stick blender right there um, that we yeah. use those are those are great because um, you know you have to macerate the fruit at some point right. um, so my personal favorite is using uh, IQF and then we blend it down. Blending, okay. Um, Do you blend it down, like pull some beer off of the tank to you know, make your blend with that beer? Or? Uh, when you, we let the fruit defrost, uh, because enough. because those cell walls have been burst, uh, it's much more juicy okay. um, than if we would just freeze it. Or I'm sorry, if you just had a hole and yeah. we tried to yeah. puree it. Um, yeah, if people use like Oregon fruit, like I don't give a fuck. Uh, I don't buy stuff from them, but that doesn't mean I have any sure. philosophical sure. issue with that. Um, but you know, when we use uh, like yuzu, I'm not getting whole yuzus in and then peeling them by hand. I'm buying puree, yeah. or I'm buying pressed juice. Um, so um, there, there are some things which are very important, and other yeah. things which are more storytelling. Uh, okay, kind of like sea salt in Goza. It does not make a fucking bit of difference what type of goddamn <laughs> salt you use, but you put pink Himalayan sea salt on it, and then all of a sudden it's like, ooh, fancy. Uh, it, it salt is salt is salt in the levels yeah. that we're using. We're not. If you want to use fancy finishing salt and that will make people like your beer better, great, go for it. Right. I'm not. I'm not here to yuck your yum. Uh, I'm just. It does make a goddamn bit of lick, lick a difference. <laughs> um, so. You mean you don't brew with Malden salt flakes for the uh, individual character that those yeah. have to add to it? No. Exactly. No, we're we're more focused on the technical aspect. Whereas right. if you switch salt brands, you ha- you should then look at the amount of sodium in that brand. Uh, because that's your actual 
balance right, point. Right. You can't just replace it by volume because some salt is saltier than other salt. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at you know the percent salinity, uh, but that's just how we make beer. Let's talk a little bit about corralling wild cultures, and uh, then maybe we should open up another beer here while we do it. Um, uh, you know, when it when it comes down to it, you've been doing it for a long time, even from you know from Goose Island days. Uh, talk to me about how you develop. Um, uh, you know, and then select for the kinds of flavors that you're looking for uh, with the wild cultures that you work with. Sure, uh, that's very much the heart of what we do over here at, at Moss Trapper. I'll probably call it MT at some point. But okay, that's just sort of our initials. Um, wild cultures and mixed stuff has always been very interesting to me. Uh, it takes a while to build mixed cultures up. It's very rare that you get super lucky and everything just happens. Yeah. Um, uh, the culture we use in a fair amount of stuff right now because it's working really well for us um, as is, is uh, we originally harvested off of uh, blueberry skins. Huh. Um, so we call our wilding culture or blueberry culture. Uh, we use it in wildings. We use it in, uh, we have a wild whip beer called uh, Critters. Uh, we've used it in a couple other st- other things over the, over the years. Um, and you just, uh, you know, uh swabbed and, and plated and, and kind of grew it up from there or uh, you know, was oh, that... it's a more romantic process yeah uh, our, our illustrator Nikki Drecki and I uh, were up visiting actually Greg Hall at Virtue Farms uh, it was before it's Virtue Farms uh, but up at Virtue uh, there's a you pick it farm uh, so we went we picked some blueberries and brought them back and threw them in some wort and you know started bubbling and then sort of cultured the yeast out of that okay um, that stuff just so happened to be super expressive and that doesn't ferment for shit um, but it's pretty ex- expressive so we were able to blend that with a little bit of Saccharomyces um, it's often what we find is when we source yeast directly from nature like or from old barrel stock or whatever um, or a relatively actual wild or native uh, harvest um, it's rare that you know brewer's yeast are brewer's yeast because they do what we want them to do right. in the environment that we want them to do it in well, you still have that training. They don't have. To, they're not housebroken yet. Um, so oftentimes, you can either brew with them time and time again, and sort of breed what you want into it by only right. by adding selective pressure. Um, so they mutate into what we want them to do, and we sl- naturally select for those yeasts that survive and mutate into what we want them to do. Uh, or we can try to mix together different yeasts to, you know, we'll add a Saccharomyces. Uh, you know, we use like 550 a fair amount. Uh, we've used uh, sort of house saison. We've used some other ALEs uh, for mixed culture stuff that will ferment the beer very well, but either their acid profile or their phenolic profile uh, will either be harmonious or just negligent or not negligent. Um, I'm blanking on the word I want, <laughs> but they'll just get out of the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the blueberry stuff is like, super expressive. Um, it, has this like overwhelming uh, aroma of blueberry juice, which is weird because I have a hard time with my bar staff here even, or like non non professional brewers being like, oh, it tastes like blueberries because you got from blueberries. Like now that's that's it, yeah, there's no connection it, there. Right. I don't know why it did that, yeah. uh, but nature's nature's kind of cool. Um, and is that a, a real thing that people identify blindly, or is there some sort of psychological connection which uh, you know says you know creates more of a suggestion of that because you know the story uh well we, we put on a label that it's harvested from blueberry skins okay um, so there's certainly some suggestion in there but yeah you know if you smell it blindly i i personally think it's very blueberry yeah, yeah. 
because um, both of those things, I mean, they're they're both equally valid. Yeah. I mean, that power of, of suggestion and what it you know plants to your mind is is real. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know it's not fake. But uh, how do you you know as you were uh, you know building and then selecting this culture for some of the traits that you like? You know, what does that process look like, and how do you kind of push you know uh, that culture through its evolution? Uh, I mean, a lot of it's selective pressure, like this fermented well and we liked how it tasted so we're going to yeah. use it again this this time it did not work so well so let's look at what we did and either the yeast is going in a direction we don't want it to go and yeah we can try to save it or we can just ditch it and we've learned to ditch things uh, that have not worked out well um and is this culture uh, you know a, a single wild yeast or is this uh you know is there are there other uh, entities in there as well as you know lacto pdo uh, or other things this is whatever the fuck was growing on blueberry skins well, that right. got dropped into wort <laughs> Six years ago, and has been like repropped. So clearly, you've yeah. done a thorough genetic analysis oh, yeah. of uh, of all of this. Uh, we actually have sent that uh, creature comforts is doing a. I think they're trying to get a talk together for CBC okay. this year. Um, so they got a bunch of wild cultures from different breweries, ran them through DNA se- sequencing. Oh, okay. Uh, so we actually have gotten that done, but again, I don't know what <laughs> that is a sequence of per se because okay. it, there's not just one thing in there. Right. Uh, we have tried to bank that now um, because right now it kind of you knows li- living in one keg. Yeah. Like that was like our master culture, and that makes me very nervous. That because, would be, yeah, that would, that would keep you up at night. Yeah. Um, now it lives in a keg and a fooder. Uh, <laughs> so we tried banking it, um, then yeah. ordered from yeah. that bank and fronted a beer with it. And it's like, eh, it's close, but it's not, it's not it. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to rebank it with a with a different technique, um, but you know the thing with mixed culture is not just one thing. Right. Um, so right. when you bring it down to a you know single cell more or less, you're trying to grow up into a fermentable culture. Things grow at different rates. Right. Um, so all of a sudden, your very well balanced or hopefully well balanced mixed culture is no longer in balance. And yeah. Balance. Now, are you uh, growing up and you know each time you you, know, you produce a new beer with this, um, are you uh, you know, say for example, you know, uh, uh, pulling beer out and then adding more beer back into that tank, Solaris style. Are you uh, now able to even like completely empty a tank and load fresh beer in and have the culture simply just live in that in that wood and, and you know, continue that fermentation? Uh, what does that fermentation process look like each time you want to make a new beer using that culture? Sure. Uh, so, so we got our fruiters in. Um, so they were new to us. Um, they came out of a winery, so they're not brand new fruiters. Right. Uh, but they were new to us, and they were not inoculated with the mixed cultures. We have five more or less different mixed cultures, and okay. we have five fooders. It's almost as if those things are, are balanced with each other. Uh, so each one so that is intentional. Yeah. Um, and we kind of had more stuff, and, but that's, that's where we're at now. Yeah. Um, there's also stuff that's living in those kegs over there. Okay. That's a different story. <laughs> uh, so uh, we fermented beer in stainless um, and then transferred it to the fooders with mixed culture um, for their first full for their first fill um, and then for the second one you know, drained out 80% of the liquid in there uh, leaving the yeast cake behind um, and then just put fresh wort on top so kind of like a Solera process but not right, not right. as much it's really just almost cone to cone but leaving it in the same fooder exactly um, and that we did very intentionally to try to get more cells to permeate the wood and sort of get to the point where yeah. those fooders we can drain completely, sure. even rinse them out if we need to, uh, if something goes off. 
um, and then you know lightly clean them if necessary, but still have enough of the mixed culture right, living right. in the wood itself that will self-inoculate. Um, so we're getting to the point with some of those fooders. Uh, we have one where we had a pretty bad leak in the bottom, so I had to fully drain it. Yeah, um, and I was very worried that we're going to mix. We we're going to like lose the cultures living there. So hard to uh, half barrel the yeast off the very bottom, or yeast and dead protein. Like it's yeah. not the best way of harvesting, especially because they're not cylindroconical tanks. Right. Um, but sort of did our best. Um, rinsed it out, uh, fixed the leak in the bottom. We have a two and a half inch threaded uh, TC fitting that goes into the bottom, and just the wood around there. It's it's probably twenty year old wood. Right. Um, so and then. It's been holding acidic liquid for a long time. <laughs> sure. Um, so it just it gets kind of wonky. So right. fix that, um, rinse the tank, uh, then cast the yeast back in, and it went right back to how we were expecting it to okay. taste, uh, which is very <laughs> – I, I slept much better that night than I had in, in nights previous, let's put it that way. Um, but now that a lot of them are very well seasoned, uh, if we need to or want to, we can pull everything out. And at a certain point, you don't want to keep adding – fresh wort onto beer. Right, because then that, that sludge and mess at the bottom can, uh, you know, certainly go a whole nother bad direction for you. Oh, yeah. Also, it's like, oh, cool. So this is a 58 hectoliter uh, uh, fooder, and it's, yeah. we have 20 hectoliters of dead yeast in the bottom of it. It's not, not a great thing. Right. Um, but... And so you don't temperature control those? You're, you're letting them sit at your uh, ambient room temperature? Yeah, uh, they do have cooling fins installed in them. Okay. Um, we have glycol run to that room. Um, so if it would, for whatever reason, get super hot in there, or yeah. if we did something with a lot of sucrose, where I'm worried that it's going to get too hot. Uh, we do have the ability to cool them if we wanted. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, we do free-ride stuff on there. Um, you know, there, there's some romantic aspect to that. It's like, you know, we, we pitch it cool and we let it naturally rise, and there's this sense of like you know it's the sense of place and time and right. that makes the beer special also this i never hooked the glycol up <laughs> <laughs> so your free rise is more of a an excuse for uh, just to laziness yeah okay it's, it's a good story though yeah. uh, how do you uh uh you know kind of uh you know manipulate uh, in, in other kinds of ways the expression of you know things like acidity within that culture um you know are you using any other tools to kind of you know bring certain things up and tone other things down uh, I, I personally select for cultures in, that don't get too acidic. Okay. Um, and when things start to get too acid, I don't like a ton of acid in, in beer, um, which you can tell with the beers that I make. Sure. Um, I tend to not gravitate towards those cultures or I'll put less of them in. Uh, what has been super fun is working with other breweries. Like I really like doing collab beers. Um, we don't do a ton of them, but I really enjoy doing them. And I enjoy doing them with breweries that either do something similar to us, but in a very disparate way, um, or do stuff that is very different from what we do. Okay. I, I don't personally really get the, like, we make coffee beer, and you make coffee beer, so let's make a coffee beer together. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That being said, I do a lot of mixed culture stuff, so we work with other mixed culture breweries, and you can say the exact same thing about that. Uh, but, At you know, least you're honest. Yeah. I'd, first person to say that it allows this shit is hypocritical. Uh, you could say nuance, but hypocritical is just fine. Uh, we do a fair amount of beers with uh, Corey King down Side Project. Yeah. And he's one of my favorite people to brew with um, because his palate is much more acid intense. Yeah. Um, so it pushes me, and mine is much less. And we, we get into little, not spats, but like we talk about the use of spelt. He uses a lot of spelt. I use a very little amount, bit of spelt. I use a fair amount of sugar in my beer. He uses none. And he's like, well, the beer's going to get dry enough as is. So I can go to zero. I'm like, yeah, but it's sugar in it, so it's drier. Um, 
things that don't necessarily make a lot of sense, but sure. he was sort of razzing each other for it. But it's fun working with him because he has just a, such a different blending palette um, that, you know, I make my beer, he makes his beer, and we make beer together or blend beer together. Um, we create something different than either of us would do otherwise. Right. Um, so I do think there's a little bit more authenticity and intellectual honesty than you do mixed firm beer, I do mixed firm beer, so we made a mixed firm beer together. So you've at least found other mixed fermentation brewers that to do things with different viewpoints and uh, mindsets so that it pushes both uh, that whatever you create is uh, more of a uh, in-between between those two things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's super fun because a lot of what we do is blending. Um, yeah. so we, we create beer, but you know, we've been fortunate that the first couple of pulls from our fooders have been special enough that we release them as is unblended. Right. Uh, but over time, uh, that is less and less likely to happen. Um, and that's where the blending aspect comes in, which I think is a super interesting part of beer. Yeah. Sort of one of those not well-developed techniques that we have in the U.S. Uh, certainly there's a lot more people doing it, and we've gotten better at it. Uh, but it's sort of one of those more or less unexplored frontiers of, of blending as opposed to batch process brewing. So how does that work for you? You know, what does that blending process look look like for you? Are, you know, I mean, are, are these food or beers becoming single-stream beers that you release as that thing, or are you looking at uh, all of these five fooders with different cultures in it, and then, you know, as some sort of uh, uh, base ingredients that work into, you know, blends for different kinds of beers? Um, so sort of the general concept of what we're, what we're doing here is taking food or beer as a large batch process more or less I mean, batch is not really the right word but a large volume of beer yeah. um, then we have a fair amount of uh, punch-ins which are five hectoliter punch-ins uh, we do everything in metric because that way no one can steal our secrets unless you live in any other part of the world besides here or Uruguay I think is the only other country but whatever we have a large volume of beer yeah. uh, and then we use it sounds smarter when you use metric too you know yeah. sound, if you, you just sound more European it's more classic oh, romantic man. so fucking classy yeah. over here yeah, yeah. Uh, but by with the punchins, uh, we were able to create much. It will take more risks because if a punching goes off or doesn't work out, we can just ditch it, and you know we're out six hundred bucks as opposed to a fooder, which is sure. much more expensive and harder to even physically get in and get out of the building if we had to get rid of it, which I don't want to do. People ask how long the punchins last for, and I say, or sorry, how long the fooders last for? I'm like, well, we have ten year lease, so so hopefully ten years. <laughs> Um, I mean, they're pretty much built into the building at this point. Yeah. Um, getting them out would be a nightmare. Uh, but with, with punching, it can take a lot more risks because if it goes off, it goes off. Um, yeah. So we'll, we create much more flavor-intense beers in those um, okay. with the idea that we can then take the food or stuff as we're not doing, if we're not doing single pulls out of them um, and then use the more intensely flavored uh, punchins in order to push that beer around. It's about 10% of the volume. Um, Obviously, we can use more or less, but one punch in is about 10% of the volume of what we'd pull from a fooder. Yeah. Um, so if we want it to have more raspberry character, we can add a fuck ton of raspberries to a punch in and then push that over if we wanted. And then would you ultimately blend a certain portion of fooder beer then in with that punch in raspberry beer in order to kind of dial into what you, you know, this vision for what that final beer tastes like? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So then these are, a, you know, a, you know, all a generally a kind of blending process. Uh, that, that's the general concept. Yeah. Um, the first, we're on a second poll or third poll on a lot of our fooders. Um, so we've been fortunate, especially in the first polls, we wanted to have them be just that fooder more or less. Yeah. Uh, because we wanted to pull that Vinius character, the spirit character out, yeah. of, out of the seasoned fooder. But as we've pulled all that wine character out, um, the, the beers get a little bit more neutral because there's not that other layer of complexity. Yeah. Uh, so that's where the other blending comes back in. 
And now you're also using some smaller barrels that still have that kind of fresh Venice character to it in order to, and then pulling some beer out of fooders and putting it into some of those barrels to push some of that wine character back into it. Yeah, exactly. And it will also take, so we'll, we'll do that. And the nice thing about punchins is you can get rid of them. Yeah. Um, you can always have fresh wine punchins come in to get that Venice character back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then we're also seasoning those punchins with the microbes that are living in the food or beer. Um, so we're doing two things at once. We're getting the fresh Venice character we want out of the punchins, and we're yeah. also seasoning it for volume expansion. Yeah, no, that's an interesting process. Uh, and then so when you're you know, looking at this stock that you have, um, you know, how does that process of envisioning you know, a beer that you want to make from them, you know, how does that, that, that proceed through it? Uh, where does that inspiration come from where you say, I, you know, I, or are you, know, are you throwing samples and you know and tasting each one of them and then you know you know uh, blending in beakers and trying to find some mix that works? Or you uh, do you take a more uh, you know kind of vision approach and have this idea that pops into your head in the shower and say, oh, I thought I could do this with these things and uh, let me go try that. What's that creative process look like? Uh, well, we start with the top-down high concept and then you end up with the beaker shit. Okay. <laughs> like uh, this is what we wanted to do and this this is what we got and yeah. Uh, which is kind of neat because you can start from a top-down process and, you know, that works most of the time, 80% of yeah. the time. Uh, but, you know, best laid plans of my cement, of course. Right. Uh, but then the, the also super fun part is the other end where you're starting with all these disparate beers in multiple barrels with very different threads um, and then creating a cohesive idea or cohesive beer out of those beers. Yeah. Both, both are interesting and fun processes. Uh, I had a blast. I was uh, over at... Uh, not a humble brag. This like I was humbled to be there um, over at Jolly Pumpkin you know, four or five months ago. Um, Ron Jeffries is one of one of the people yeah. I really look up sure, to. Sure, sure. Um, I still remember the first Bam beer I had. Like that was one of those yeah, like quintessential. Yeah. Like this is there's more to beer than I know that there is, yeah. and this is really neat, and I want to know more about it. Right. Um, that was my experience with Bam beer. So getting to know him over the years has been been great. I was just happened to be there for I was passing through town, going somewhere. I don't quite remember why I was there. Um, be like, oh yeah, we're we're just gonna do some blending. If you wanna come and sit down, I'm like, yeah, 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 yes, please. Sure, sure. Yeah. I promise to be really quiet and not poison anything. I don't, I don't know, um, but it was like a super fun experience for me to get to sit down with Ron Jeffries and sort of go through the process and see how they do it, which is fortunately not very disparate or different than how we do it. Yeah. Um, well, the same process. I mean, Ron's always learning too, and I know he's taken some field trips out to you know blend with other prominent blenders. Same kind of thing. Not you know he has his process and it's great, but he always wants to learn from other people yeah. too. And so, uh, uh, no one no one thinks they've got it all figured out at yeah. this point. Everyone's open to you know that kind of uh, creative inspiration from other uh, visionaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, we mentioned I mentioned earlier that uh, you've kind of found yourself making a foray into sake and uh, brewing sake, which is uh, you know kind of some new territory for American craft brewers and kind of a growing segment, if, uh, if yet still a small one. Uh, where was the inspiration that came behind that? And uh, talk to me a little bit about how you know, you know what you've learned through that process. Uh, well, we started. Here's some if you want to sure, try it. Sure. Sure. Uh, so we started doing uh, sake as we were making a beer with the Field Museum, which is our big natural history museum here. Yeah, um, we, we do some recreations of historic beverages periodically with them, um, and we were uh, working with one of their archaeologists um, on doing a beer we did called Kingming, uh, which was a recreation of a beverage that they sort of figure out how they did through analysis and th- through some codification. Uh, that was the first time they were written down how they did mold-based sacrification 
um, in Asia in 1300 BCE, something like that. Um, it's been a while since I've had to do these talking points. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting for us because, you know, in, in the West, we have, you know, we sacrifice carbohydrate with a malting process. Um, and then we get the, the enzymes are created during the, the malting process. We then harvest those enzymes through uh, mashing, right. uh, as opposed to how they're doing things um, in Asia uh, with mold-based sacrification. So they grow up this mold, which releases exogenous uh, sacrification enzyme, and then you add that, um, which is a much different process. And you know, it's kind of cool just to like learn something new and do something different. For a couple of years, it's just nice to learn something else that's not just stock sure. brewing. Sure. Um, so started just messing around with it for making that beer, um, kind of like learned the process. Um, and then went, oh, you know, we're opening up this new place. Like, got a little bit of time on our hands um, because our fermentations here are very long fermentations. So there are days where I don't have much to do. Right. Uh, I guess I could scrub the floors a little bit more, but that's, uh, it's also nice to, I'm, I'm here, might as well be doing something interesting. Sure. Um, so we started developing the sake process. Um, went through all the licensure steps and all that. Um, and there's not a lot of resource out there. There's a little bit of resource, uh, but not a ton of resource in the U.S. of how to sure, do this. So sure. it's, it's sort of unexplored territory. Um, and it allows us to approach fermentation in a different way. Because um, then I look at a lot of beer through the fermentation aspect. Um, so we're, we're taking sake yeast for blending with some of our mixed culture stuff. Because um, I think it would be kind of inappropriate for us to just jump in right off the gate and trying to make like Daijingo and like high-end competition sake. It's like, I don't want the background in it. I don't know anything about it. The first person to tell you, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so we wanted to have our, our own take on this is, you know, we're approaching rice-based fermentations through the lens of what we do at Soft Color. So our own take is a clever way of saying we have an out if it doesn't taste as good as some of the well-made Japanese stuff. Or extremely different. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we make particularly rustic sake mm-hmm. um, because that's just kind of what our ethos is. is sure. Not trying to make extremely make refined. rustic beer too. Exactly. Um, so you know it's very much a work in progress. Um, sort of every time that we make a batch, uh, we sort of all the money that we make for we put back into the program to yeah. try to buy more equipment. Um, we're we're getting to the point where we've got everything we kind of need um, and the scale that we need it in. I got a I got a little bladder press uh, yeah. so I can press it more efficiently. That's okay. it's been a godsend. Um, so it took a process which took you know about eight hours by hand. Um, now I can do it in like forty five minutes to an hour. Yeah, um, and get a lot better efficiency. Um, so for that you know the rice and the rice, the water, the yeast, and the koji are all mixed together in a tank and all ferment at the same time. So it's a comor- comorbid process, uh, which is also kind of cool because that's not how we do things in brewing where we right. have different batch processes. Um, at the end of it, you know, we have this sort of liquid slurry, like this oatmeal porridge sort of deal. Um, so we press that to get to separate the liquids and the solids, yeah. and then we take those rice solids, the leaves, and then we add them to the mash tun uh, for pills and beer, and that's how we make uh, koi, which is our sake pills. Huh. Um, so that's where we had it first. Yeah. Um, we take the more liquid portion. I'm sure, you saw me pour some of that off earlier. Right. Um, so as after we separate it, it's not a fine filtration. So there's still those very fine particulate solids in there. Those those are heavier, uh, so they'll fall to the bottom of whatever vessel you put them in. We then rack the clearer sake off the top, leaving those the heavier weight stuff on the bottom, and then we add that liquidy portion um, in whirlpool, um, which. You know, it's not a ton, but it adds a ton of flavor, which huh. is probably the most most surprising thing to me is how flavor intense 
you know, small amounts of, you know, sort of these residual sake products, how much they push beer around. Yeah. Uh, we did a beer with, um, with Jester King where we added just, I'd, we had some koji and Avery was in town. So it's like, yeah, let's just take the koji I have here. And like, I'll, I'll make more and we'll just add this to this beer that we're supposed to make. Uh, it's something we, we've always enjoyed doing with Jester King is you know, sure. having like a plan and then just like <laughs> game dang it completely. Um, be like, well, this is what we have in hand, so what do you want to do? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was not a ton of koji we added to that beer. It was called Signet. Um, and I was just surprised at how much that flavor came through from, you know, less than half a percent by volume or by weight or whatever. Really? Um, just huh. a small amount. It's extremely flavor active, like more than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, so it's been super fun just, like, learning learning new stuff. Yeah. Um, now that we've gotten the, the process of sake linked in a little bit, um, it allows us, and we have more volume than we had in the past. Allows us to do some more experimentation with it. Uh, so we have a Galaxy Dry Hop Sake and one with uh, infused with pure yuzu oil, which is you know, if you take an orange and like you express it, you get that oil that comes out. This is that, but from yuzu, so it's extremely expensive. Ah, oh, um, see, you're doing what American brewers do and yeah. turning up the volume on sake, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the dry hop one was just to make it a little bit more approachable and to see if what effect it had. Uh, but that's the Yuzu one. It's extremely, there's half a mil of Yuzu oil in 20 liters. Um, so it's almost nothing. Uh, but the stuff is so extremely potent. It's, and it's just kind of fun. It certainly um, is. It's yeah. a, I mean, it's a unique set of flavors that, uh, um, you know, feel novel and different for, mm-hmm. uh, for my palate. Yeah. And, you know, it's not anything we're going to make a ton of money on, and it's not going to be a volume product or a growth product yeah. for us, but it's just something we do to keep it interesting. How's the beer audience uh, that you have taken to these uh, sake products? Um, the, our, our audience, for the most part, is pretty adventurous, um, yeah. so people are very intrigued by it because not a lot of us know a lot about sake. Sure. Um, so, especially native fermented or mixed fermented sakes, uh, which is I, not a not a lot of people in Japan know about that sort sure, of stuff because sure. that's not how you know, there are some uh, sake producers over there that do do that sort of stuff, but that's not how most sake is made. Right. Um, so you know, it's it's just applying the same way of looking at beverages or alcohol or whatever the fuck. Right. Um, just as it's a different substrate than beer, but it's the same approach to it. Um, so people are, seem to be intrigued. Yeah. Uh, we're releasing on Friday. The first time we released it, the bar was full. Um, I imagine we'll be full tomorrow. So yeah. Now you know I, I find that trend interesting among brewers, especially those on the more creative bent. Uh, you know that have hung their hats on the you know, more experimental front of beer. Uh, I was just talking to Jeff Restuffings of uh, Jester King uh, on Friday, and mentioned that they're changing their license from a uh, brew pub license to a production brewery license because now they can sell beer over the tap uh, over the you know uh, as a production brewery, but being a production brewery will allow them to make wine. You know, and they are uh, actively uh, going to pursue a program of making uh, their own wine using you know, local Texas uh, ingredients, and that that was you know that's that next foray for him. And he you know described a similar thing that you said. You know, they have time in their hands. They're curious about these things. They feel as if they've you know taken the beer where they want to take it, and they're continuing to experiment. But the you know the risk in those experiments is more narrow now than it used to be, and so. Uh, having you know achieved a certain comfort zone in that kind of sphere, they are 
actively looking for a way to push themselves out of that comfort zone again and then moving into something like wine certainly puts them back at square one trying to figure it out and mm-hmm. figuring out how to apply their creative approach to that it seems like you have a very similar kind of mindset here we've we've done this on the beer side and we're happy but we're creative and restless people that need to now explore something and continue to push ourselves in order to to do this and so now you've you've uh, found sake as that kind of avenue to continue pushing yourself Something like that, but less grandiose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as an editor, it's my job to make it sound uh, more important than it might be. Yeah. Um, so, are there any other uh, uh, you know plans in the works for or other projects like that that are uh, that are kind of keeping you excited these days? Uh, the other thing we have some of it that been the most fun project I've had in in years, um, in addition to the sake stuff, has been this miscellaneous project that we have. Uh, so we tend to work with other mixed firm breweries. Um, so over the years, uh, a lot of our barrel stock is sort of, you know, right. very common thing is, you know, they'll send their culture, we'll send our culture, and we mix the culture together and sure. make something out of that. Um, so over the years, like a lot of our barrel stock is just has a whole bunch of other people's stuff in it. Right. Uh, so it's kind of hard to, you know, get, oh, that was pretty loud. You don't want to throw those barrels away, per se. Um, yeah. But they're quintessentially different than stuff that we have that's sure. you know, just our own culture stuff. Um, so one of our fooders here, we took all the barrel stock um, with all those different microbes from different breweries, different wild cultures, and blended them all together in one fooder. Huh. So we try to do this. You know, the meta-culture of sort. Exactly. Um, so you know, different threads from the yeast and different breweries that we worked right. with over the years. Uh, and then we keep expanding on those the stuff in that so we're not trying to drain all the, the beer out trying to get all the yeast out of it we're trying to continually expand that culture with other breweries uh, this has been a super fun project um, because the yeast is more not more or less the same but yeast is slower changing uh, we're changing the base style um, so we're doing miscellaneous volume two right now uh, the first one was a very you know sort of quintessential american wild ale which is kind of a bullshit catch-all term anyway uh, but you know sort tell of, us how you really feel kind of like an eight percent beer with a little bit of vienna and like okay. a hop character um, uh, volume two wanted to switch up a little bit because um, we didn't change a lot of the yeast in it we did add a little bit we added uh one of our hellbroth cultures and stuff from we had something else but i can't remember what it was oh we added a laboratory strain of brett c uh, that was the other thing we added to it uh, but we did a sort of super saison base so a little bit lighter um than the, the miscellaneous volume one was yeah. um, in terms of color and, and malt presence. Um, so this stuff has stuff from Jester King, Side Project, Allagash's House Brett, and Central State, um, which is a fun little brewery out of uh, Indianapolis. Um, good friends of ours. Um, and then on volume three, which is in there right now, uh, we've added stuff from Jackie O's and we'll maybe add something else to it as well. We only have one turn in there I'm trying to get Ron Jeffries to come to Chicago, but <laughs> that, that's a hard, hard thing to do to get Ron out of Michigan right now. Um, you know, when you start mixing these kinds of uh, cultures from different breweries together, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, for one, obviously you're just looking to, to see what happens. There's almost a you know chaotic kind of joy element to it. Um, you know, have you noticed uh, how those things uh, complement or compete with each other uh, in that kind of broader context? That's been the most fun part of this is, you know, I know other people's cultures relatively well by working with those people and knowing their beers, you know, know the JK stuff and how it works. Right. Spent a lot of time with the JK sure, folks. Sure, sure. Um, so what's really fun is seeing how 
this sort of master blended culture um, shows all the different parts of what those things were. Uh, so like JK stuff has this sort of minerality. Um, so certainly if you can pick this out in the beer, the Sabbatic stuff is much more acidic and has this you know, very intense, almost like nectarine-like um, acid. Um, I can see that in this beer, though it's a little bit more strained because it's not as, it's a part of the whole, not right. as, as much proportion. Um, I definitely know what our stuff does. It's, it's neat to see like all these different pieces and yeah. how, how that works together as a patchwork. Um, so that's been the fun part of, for this for me. It's just, the, I'm, as, I'm more surprised that you can see this more as a mosaic uh, and still see like being able to hone in on the individual points. Uh, I thought it would actually be less than than that, but and from the brewer perspective, you get that. You know, from a consumer perspective, you know, it's an interesting. Uh, you know, with a high kind of you know, citrus, tangerine, nectarine, maybe a little like hints of lime driving mm-hmm. through it. Like it, it's a very fruity, uh, you know, kind of beer approach with a moderate acidity that's uh you know it's pretty well controlled it feels in line with that kind of citrus sweetness um i imagine it's not actually very sweet and it's simply just tastes this is, yeah. this is zero plato yeah 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 it's uh, it's that interesting trick that uh, that these kinds of beers play on you uh you know that uh, they you know, they're perceived as much sweeter even though they're not sweet beers mm-hmm. um you know, but from a consumer perspective, you could simply enjoy this broad, you know, fruitiness and, uh, you know, and there's that kind of layered character to it without even having to pull out all of those individual pieces. Yeah. I'm glad you think it tastes good. Well, it's delicious. <laughs> um, well, John Laffler, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you sharing beers and sharing your perspective on brewing with us. If uh, people want to learn more about Off Color, uh, where do they find you? Uh, me? Well, I'm here at Mousetrap, but yes. <laughs> uh, they can find us on the website, which we still have. Yeah, uh, the website. That's so old school. Yeah. Uh, they can send us a piece of mail. Please, please don't send me mail. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, so, usual social media channels are going to be the best. Again, we hired the best cat person who ran the best cat Twitter right. account to run our Twitter account. So, so can. they can also send you cat memes then? Oh, no. Please send us cat pictures. Please. Yeah. Uh, we One of our things is we send uh, Christmas cards to all the all the brewery cats that we know of every year Christmas cards to the brewery cats yeah. well if you're a cat fanatic check out Off Color Brewing at uh, all those places on the internet and uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast uh, uh, please uh, subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine go to beerandbrewing.com uh, hit that subscribe button uh, and uh, we will send you a magazine every two months as a result of that uh, so you can read about great brewers like John uh, and Off Color Brewing and uh, a whole bunch of others uh, before we go, GD Chillers sets the standard on quality, service, and reliability. Turn your fridge into the best beer bar around with Tavor. Scott Fabricating is the craft industry's leading choice for packaging line automation. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert that experts trust. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks, John, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.